Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we're reading Haggai um, 1, 2 through 11. That's page 461 in the Blue Bibles. And I'd just like to remind you that if you need a Bible, um, feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That's page 461, Haggai 1, 2 through 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what ground bring, um, on what ground, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Thus says God's word. Amen. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for the gift that you have given us in your word. We thank you because, uh, Lord, there's, there's no better examination of us than your word. Lord, your, God, your word searches us and finds us out. And so we thank you for that. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that this morning. We ask that you would, um, by a work of your spirit, divinely enable us to hear what you're saying and to uh, uh, conform our lives to the truth of this word. And, uh, Lord, that, that none of us, no matter where we are in relation to you, none of us would leave this place unchanged because we've heard your word and because we've responded obediently and reverently to it. God, I ask for help for myself, Lord, that, um, Lord, there would be no tinge of hypocrisy uh, in the words I say because, Lord, you are working in me um, even as the word is delivered, God. And I pray that you would help me to speak uh, both fearlessly uh, as as a messenger of yours and, and both trembling as one who stands before your word. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for this. I just give you praise and glory and commit the rest of these moments to you as we dive into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, doing this series on the Minor Prophets, we've been in for several weeks, and we've, we've come to, you may know this, you may not know this, but we've come to a shift. So with the book of Zephaniah uh, that we did last week, we came to the last book that is addressed to God's people, either in Israel before they were dis, uh, you know, defeated and dispersed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., or to Judah before they were conquered by Babylon and exiled there for 70 years. Now, God promised 
the people of Judah. Remember, we talked north, northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. God promised the people of Judah that they would be exiled in Babylon for 70 years through the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and the reason was their unfaithfulness, their idolatry. And in spite of these promises of, of coming judgment, of coming exile for them, they continued unabashed. They, they violated the covenant they had with God in unbelief. They didn't believe what the prophets were saying. In fact, they had opposing prophets who would say, no, everything's going to be fine. And, and the faithful prophets were saying, no, uh, you know, the exile is coming. You will be taken into captivity. So between 597 BC and 587 BC, about 10 years, God kept his word. Babylon, the greatest military power on the earth at the time, came in and with all its military power began to exile the people out of Judah. Um, when the puppet king of Judah, one that was installed, uh, a guy named Zedekiah, when he decided, well, we're going to take control of the situation and rebel against the Babylonians, it did not work out well. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in, destroyed the city of Jerusalem, absolutely devastated and demolished the temple of God, the one that Solomon had built that had stood for centuries. And so the people of Judah remained in captivity until a new empire arose that defeated the, the Babylonian empire. It was the Medes and the Persians. And their king Cyrus the Great issued an edict in 538 BC. And that was important because what it did, it allowed the exiled Jews to return home to rebuild the temple. And these events that I'm describing can be read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Now, the remaining three books that we have in the Minor Prophets, uh, the one we're doing today, Haggai, and then the next two, Zechariah and Malachi, all of these were written to Jews who have returned home to Jerusalem from Babylon. And in these last book, three books, one thing that's really important to understand is, you know, this is not written to uh, a nation whose God has proven to be weak and who, who should have their tail between their legs. In, in fact, in these last three books, God is most often given the title the Lord of hosts. Now that's a great name. And what it means is that it, it refers to the fact that, that God has command over both heavenly and earthly armies. And it can also highlight God's glory and his sovereignty over all creation. The, the idea behind the Lord of hosts is a big deal. That term is used 14 times in Haggai and Haggai only has 38 verses. So it's a big deal. So in Haggai, this is demonstrated this idea of God as the Lord of hosts, it's demonstrated as we see God as the origin of, of these divine words. We read over and over again when Haggai relay, relays the words of a prophetic utterance, we read these words that he says, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It wasn't the word of Haggai, it was the word of the Lord. God is also portrayed in the Lord of hosts as the sovereign one who controls the fortunes of both his people and of all the nations of the earth. He controls nature. He motivates his people to action. He establishes and, dis and deposes kings and kingdoms over the whole earth. And so in chapter one, with the, the portion that Danae read to us, the context is laid out for us. This is where we find ourselves after 70 years in captivity and the people have been back in the land for about 20 years at this point. And this is what's happened. They've returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That was the main goal of going back. But the temple, after 20 years, still lies in ruins. 
However, this is the last thing on anyone's mind in Jerusalem at the time. It's the last thing that they attend to. Instead, they pursue comfort. Uh, 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 Danae read us this passage, Haggai 1.4. It says, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses, in your paneled houses, while this house, meaning the temple, lies in ruins? But see, what they were also trying to do is to gain for themselves economic security and pro- even prosperity, while God's interests, in the land with his people were totally neglected, completely neglected, overlooked, ignored. And because of their misguided and self-serving priorities, God has cursed their labors. They've put forth tremendous effort since they've been back. They've put forth all kinds of effort, agriculturally and in other ways, and and yet they've little to show for everything that they've done. Let's read that verse again in verse 6 of chapter 1. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Now, can you imagine... The, the image of that, somebody gets paid a handful of coins for their weekly labor and they, they immediately put it into a bag and it's just dropping out. They're, they're, they have nothing to show for all their labor. And so what God is trying to paint a picture through Haggai's words is that they're frustrated in their work and they're unsatisfied. This is not the way it was supposed to be. They were coming back to the land of blessing, a land flowing with milk and honey, and nothing is going right. So God does this. He tells them to take a hard look at the strong correlation that exists between their frustrating, unsatisfying lives with all its pitiful harvest and their neglect of God's house. He says it twice in the passage we read in verse 5 and verse 7. He says, consider your ways. And then God tells them something else. He tells them, get to work. He says, it's time to get to work. They are to go up to the hills. They're to cut lumber in order to right this wrong. There is no hope for their their situation to improve until they prioritize what matters to God. What God wants has to be the highest priority. As the people of God, they can no longer delay in rebuilding the house where God's glory is to dwell among them. And God makes a clear statement to them that he alone is the highest purpose and the loftiest goal. He tells his people to build his house, listen to this, so that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified. See, sometimes we want to make ourselves the centerpiece of the story of Scripture. And God says, you're not the centerpiece. I am. This is for my glory. This is so I may take pleasure in it. God's telling the Jews that when he is properly glorified, when the highest priority to given what is given to what brings him pleasure, guess what? They will be blessed, but not the other way around. They have to prioritize him. They have to lift him up to the loftiest place and then they will be blessed. There's two aspects to the work that God is telling them to undertake. In both aspects, they're going to have to shift their focus from themselves onto God. And here's what they are. First, there's a physical element, manual labor. They have to get to work, literally. 
Instead of constantly improving their own estates, they need to intentionally work toward what matters to God. They have to work to supply building materials and and they have to provide the necessary labor to get this job done. And this was a matter of goal and priority setting. It was a matter of discipline to follow through and the willingness to sacrifice for God's glory the things that they value. God was calling them to invest not only their time, energy, money, and possessions for His glory, and this is the main point, God was telling them to sacrifice even their wills to the glory of God. God is calling them to engage what I'm going to call their want to. God is telling them not to do their, not to work out of their have to, but to engage their want to, to regard Him and what He takes pleasure in as the object of their own desire. But if you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, raise your hand if you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes. If you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, you've probably noticed at this point in your journey that one of the most fleeting things you possess is your want to. Am I right? Everyone's looking over at their neighbor. Well, no, it's true about him. You may have a strong religious have to. So you do all the stuff because your have to is strong and readily engaged. But God wants your want to. God wants your want to. He is looking for people who will engage their desire in serving, loving, and following Him. There must be a spiritual or heart element in our work for the Lord, not just religious duty and physical labor. There has to be a heart behind it. And fortunately, oh my goodness, how fortunate this is for all of us. The Lord knows that we're frail and we're weak. He knows how fleeting our want to actually is. He knows it better than we do. He knows how often we're lacking in the moral will to do what is required. And so therefore, this is good news, folks. God steps in. He did the same in Haggai's time. The people obeyed the Lord is what we're told in the end of chapter 1. They obeyed the Lord, they exercised their will, their want to, and they even feared the Lord, meaning that they considered all that God was worthy of. And in this action, the Lord met them when they engaged their want to. Listen to it, Haggai 1.13. When Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord, listen, this is what happens. So God, they, they obey, they fear the Lord, they get to work, and the Lord sends this message, I'm with you. And then listen what happened. And then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So the, so the political leader and the religious leader are stirred up by the spirit of God to do what's right. And watch. And the spirit of all the remnant of the people, everybody was united on board with this idea of putting what God wants, what brings Him pleasure, what brings Him glory first. And they all got after it. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. I hope, I hope that you can see that I have no desire to give you just a history lesson, as important as the history is. I hope you can see that there's a clear parallel of our lives in Christ 
to the story of Haggai. 1 Corinthians 3.16 is a powerful verse. It it sets a context for the Christian life like, like few other verses. It says, Do you not know that you, believers, are God's temple? And God's Spirit dwells in you. Now listen to this. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy. And guess what, folks? You are that temple. So what I want you to do this morning, I, I want everybody to engage their want to, and I want you to answer this question right now if you're honest Before your creator, before your king, before your judge, if you're honest, is the temple lying in ruins? Because you've neglected it. Because you've put yourself about the work of your own comfort, your own security, and neglected what brings God pleasure, what brings God glory. Is that you this morning? Are you giving attention to the renovation of God's temple and so that God will be glorified so that he'll take pleasure in his temple? We're living in an age, listen to me, where people will quickly and casually attach themselves to churches, to ministries, to to theologies. And the one thing they will not attach themselves to is Jesus. They're not grabbing on to Jesus. We live in an age where people will do the bare minimum to claim an association with the people of God, all the while ignoring the fact that the temple lies in ruins because they are neglecting the work of a saint. We can know the temple lies in ruins. And we can know it when people refuse to repent. Martin Luther famously said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. No one is a one and done repenter. Repentance is something that should follow the life of a believer all of our days until we're face to face with Jesus. We can also know the people are neglecting the renovation of the temple the rebuilding of the temple because their Bibles remain unopened for weeks, for months, or even years at a time. Some people were fine listening to a famous preacher's podcast or their radios will blast Caleb all day long in their car. They may even post inspirational scriptures or Christian quotes to Instagram, but they can't be still and meditate on God's word for more than five minutes without getting bored. There's no hunger for it whatsoever. But do you realize that opening the pages of this book is how we hear God? This is the voice of God speaking to us in the pages of this book. So when you have no hunger for this book, when you have no patience for this book, when you have to be hyper-stimulated by other things and can't give time to the meditation of this book, you are saying, I do not need to hear from God. Some of us, have forgotten that the Bible tells us what pleases God. It tells us 
what God requires of us. It tells us what He's done for us. Some of us have become so conditioned to taking someone's word for what God's will is because they haven't opened up the Bible that they'll have an eternity in hell to consider it. And that's not God's intention. God's intention is to speak to you in the pages of this book. And I haven't even mentioned setting aside time to pray or to serve others who need your help or talents or faithfully setting aside some of your money and material resources to bless others or to ensure the gospel is preached globally. I haven't mentioned any of that. And, and please hear me. This is a grace church. We are not about religious duties or legalism. What I'm talking about is something in your heart. It's about your want to. Is your want to this morning engaged for the glory of God? And this is serious business. Like many of the people in Haggai's time, many of you are frustrated or unsatisfied in life because though you claim to be followers of Jesus, your life is all about yourself. So how do we know that God even cares about this stuff? Malachi 3, 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is foolishness to say that God now requires anything less from you and I than the prioritization of his glory above all else if he truly does not change. He still wants to be glorified over everything. He still wants to be the loftiest goal and the highest priority of your life. He still wants that. And it's foolishness to say that God requires anything else. Matthew 6.33, most of you can quote it, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things, all those silly, stupid, and sometimes even meaningful things that we spend our life in pursuit of are promised to be added to us if we seek first His kingdom. But if we seek the stuff first, we'll just put it into bags with holes in the bottom of them. And we'll just leave it trailing everywhere. Now you probably know, as I mentioned earlier to you, who have been saved for 15 minutes. You probably know how this works. I doubt that there's anybody in this building who calls themselves a believer, who has not made vows before to do better to be more disciplined, to read your Bibles more, to pray more, and on and on and on and on, only to find that the results of your, of your vow, of your oath, of your commitment, to be a little bit disappointing. You hear what I'm saying about the want to, but you have little hope in yourself for a hunger for God's Word to grow. Let's go back to the story of Haggai. After the Jews worked to rebuild the temple for a while, God said this. He said, all right, guys, step back, take a look at what you're doing. See, the previous temple that Solomon had built was amazing. It was majestic. It was glorious. In a word, it was beautiful. The finest materials had been used. The finest craftsmen had been employed. It was loaded with accents of gold and other precious metals. This thing was beautiful. It was amazing, that building standing in ancient Jerusalem. But the new effort looked a little bit more like one of my ill-fated home improvement projects. Anybody who knows me well gets that joke really well. I have often said that I don't even know which end of the screwdriver to hit the nail with. I have no idea. 
So it was terrible. It was disappointing. It took the wind out of their sails when they saw what they were able to produce, even though God told them to get to work. Haggai 3.2 says, Who is left among you? This is God speaking to the people. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, the one that Solomon left you? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? There was no way for them to look at what they were building and not be disappointed by it. Oh, man, we have fallen way far from the mark of what Solomon left us. The old men who were old enough to, to have seen the old temple, they wept and they remembered what the Babylonians had destroyed. And this building did not compare by any stretch of the imagination. And these guys were discouraged. Um, what are we even trying to do here? This is ridiculous. And yet, in the middle of their discouragement, in the middle of their disappointment, God promises four things about this new temple. Four things. First, he says that my presence will remain there. I will not withdraw my Holy Spirit from that temple. Ezekiel, when he was in Babylon after the exile, he saw the glory of the Lord leave the temple. He leave the first temple, the one that Solomon had built. But that would not happen while these guys were rebuilding. It's endure, his, God's enduring presence was a guarantee of his promises to these, this remnant and of their success in what he had called them to do. But next, secondly, he promises that he's going to shake the whole world so that the wealth of the entire world will flow into this temple. Now, time does not allow me to go into detail about how God fulfilled this promise, both physically and more importantly, spiritually. But you should really take some time on the internet to look up this verse and, and research this. It's pretty amazing. But third, let's move on. God promises to fill the new temple, the one that they're building, the disappointing temple. He promises, he promises to fill this temple, unimpressive as it is, with his glory. And he even promises this. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. Now, how did God accomplish that? They're building this disaster of a building project compared to the, one of the most beautiful buildings that ever stood on planet Earth. And, and, and God says, this is going to be better than the last one. How did he do it? Though the disappointed builders looked at this building and they saw a mere shadow of its former glory, God would fulfill the promise of greater glory years later when he himself would step into that temple in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that temple, he would cleanse that temple. He would teach in that temple. And at the end of his ministry, he would even condemn that temple. And though the temple was also recognized as a place where God's glory resided, even the one Solomon had, in Christ, God would be himself, God himself in Christ would be seen in the new temple. He would be heard in the new temple. He would even be touched in the new temple. And lastly, God promises that in this rebuilt temple that he would grant peace. And this ultimately happened at the death of Jesus. When the veil which kept people from approaching into the presence of God 
was ripped in two when Jesus said, it is finished. And now, now, no longer would people be kept from coming boldly and without fear into the presence of God. But what implications does all of this have for us as we work to renovate the temple of our hearts as the temple of the Holy Spirit? First, in Christ, like the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, we have a promise that he will not leave us or forsake us. Matthew 28, 20 says this, Jesus' last words in the book of of Matthew, he says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Next, God promises that all the treasures of his heavenly grace will flow into this temple to make us radiant, to make us successful in his work of our sanctification. Listen to this from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3, beginning. His divine power has granted to us all things, nothing's been withheld, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Because of his abundant supply of amazing grace, we aren't doomed to failure when it comes to the pursuit of holiness and true godliness. Because of that, we can pray in confidence that God will supply us with the want to. Philippians 2.13, I can prove it. It is God, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God not only helps you get the job done, he gives you the desire to get the job done. Next, God also promises that the temple that exists now, that he has made of you to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, will one day have a far greater glory. Romans 8.30 says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. And listen, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Your glorification will be made complete at the last day, but you have been promised to be glorified. What you are now is not what you're always going to be. All your faults, weaknesses, baggage, remaining indwelling sin will one day be burned up in God's consuming fire and severed from you completely. And this is not only true of you spiritually in regard to sin, but physically in regard to sickness, disease, and death. It's true mentally in regard to despair, depression, fear, doubt, and unbelief. And to that I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And lastly, in the temple of the Holy Spirit that now exists, God is granting peace. Psalm 103, verse 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not 
always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God, because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit wouldn't even, he wouldn't even be the temple of the Holy Spirit if it weren't for Jesus. And because of Jesus, because of Jesus's indwelling of you, God has granted peace. It's described here in Psalms 103. He has not regarded you as your sins deserve. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. He's not regarded you that way. If you put your trust in Jesus, he has granted peace in this temple. You're not at war with God anymore if you've put your trust in Christ. For those who have trusted in Jesus, God is for you. He is patient and loving. He forgives the vilest sinner of the vilest sins. He is a loving father, but make no mistake. God will not bless our spiritual idleness. He will not bless the neglect of his purposes in the earth or even his purposes in your own soul. James tells us that faith without works is dead. Now, we as a church embrace the truth that works alone can save no person, but a living faith is certainly a working faith. If faith faith is real, it works. So if you have grown cold and apathetic in your spirit and you're honest enough to admit that, ask God to ignite the want to in your heart with his grace. If you fail to know God in this way, all you're going to have is frustration. You're promised absolutely no satisfaction in this life. And, and I, I, I don't want to be blunt or, or, you know, contentious, but you even have to question whether you've been saved if you have no desire for God's glory and you aren't concerned that you don't. God is not a teddy bear to comfort you on a scary night. God is not a genie to grant your selfish wishes. God is not a pagan image to be appeased. He is the holy Lord of all. And he will be glorified because the holiness of God demands that he be glorified. And the amazing thing is that though it is those who most seek his glory, it is those who most seek his glory that are the most blessed, the most satisfied, and the most happy. When my attention shifts, my focus shifts, my priority shifts from me to him, I can go through anything. Paul talked about his suffering, not his trying to win basketball games and get that big promotion. He talked about his suffering and he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So if you want to be satisfied, if you don't want your life to end up in frustration, Take a hard look at your life and see where the priority is. See what the loftiest goal of your life is. Is it your own comfort? Is it your own security? Or is it the glory of Jesus Christ? 
is that the glory of God, the majesty of of being his temple, that he might take pleasure in it. Would you stand with me? Can we pray? Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm not going to ask you to raise hands or anything like that. That sometimes happens. But I want everybody to close your eyes just so you can have a moment alone in a room full of people with Jesus. Just, just take a moment and be alone with Christ right now. And, and I want you to, to just take this moment and ask the Lord a series of questions. Ask him, Lord, what does the temple look like right now? If I am the temple of the Holy Spirit... What does the temple look like right now? Have I long neglected it for my own pursuits? And in doing so, am I frustrated? Am I unsatisfied? Just ask him. Others of you may be, don't even need to ask God that you know what the temple looks like. And, and you recognize in yourself, though you truly believe that you are a follower of Christ, you realize that what I've described as the want to, the desire, is just flickering right now. Would you ask God to just ignite the passion, the desire to see him glorified, to be a, a, a life that brings him pleasure? Would you ask him that right now? When you do that, God might point to things that he wants you to relinquish mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally. He may want you to relinquish some things so that he can be everything to you. And you may wrestle with that, but just wrestle. But ask him to give you the courage and the power and the, and the wisdom to say yes to whatever he asks. And there are some of you who are not the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your life is in shambles. I mean, you might make excuses for it. You may think that's just what it's like for everybody. But the reason your life is in shambles is because you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And Jesus, this morning, I believe, is calling your name. And he's calling you to believe. And he's calling you to put your trust in him. To become not just a desolate ruin, but the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that he can be near to you. So that he can be glorified by you. So that he can take pleasure in you. And ultimately, so that he can bless you. So if that's you, or if you're not sure, just say yes to Jesus this morning and then let us know that you did and we'll help you to walk and be successful. But for all of us, all of us who are believers, all of us who are followers of Christ, let us just take a moment, take 30 seconds, a minute, and ask the Lord to ignite in us the want to, to seek his face, to seek his glory, to seek his pleasure and ask him for the, the strength and the ability to follow through. Would you just do that right now? In your own words, in your own spirit, just ask the Lord to do something in you to draw you closer to his heart, his purposes, and certainly to his glory and to his pleasure.
the courage to ask the Holy Spirit, not only if you're neglecting the work of his temple, but where you're neglecting the work of his temple, and immediately repent. Turn around and do what the Lord is, is, is calling you to. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and, and God, the, the promises that are in it. We thank you for your call to us to lay down our lives, Lord, that really are just so empty and to seek your glory above all else, to seek your pleasure, that we would be something that you could take pleasure in, Lord. And God, we know that because your word tells us that it's when we do that, that, Lord, we are truly blessed, that our blessing doesn't come from just making demands of you or throwing up prayers to you, Lord. Our, our blessing comes when we exalt you, when we glorify you, when we place you at the loftiest position and the highest place, the, the greatest priority. And so, Lord, I pray that you would call people higher this morning. Call us to the place where our lives are literally lost in you, God. The Bible says that we are to set our affections on things above, not on things of this earth, because we have died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. Lord, make that not a poem, make it a reality in us, Lord God. We thank you for this. We surrender our lives to you. Do a real work in us this, Lord. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would just place your hands in a receiving position. I want to read a benediction over you and send you out in blessing. The Bible says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self control, and self control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.